Proverbs chapter 10, if you want to turn in your Bibles, be a good thing. (laughs) I want to go back and give you all, just for a moment, uh, a reminder of kind of the outline of this book. Uh, If you're a note taker, you want to jot this down. In fact, even if you're not, I would encourage you to find somewhere in your Bible, perhaps at the beginning if there's some open space, or maybe at the end of Proverbs if there's some open space, and jot down just this six-part outline so that as you look at and read and consider the book of Proverbs, you'll have kind of an idea of how this thing got put together the way it is. It is, to date, for me, the most unique book that we've studied. And we've studied a lot of books, and each time they seem to be more unique than the last, but this one just, it hits us differently. And so it's important to have some sense of where we're going especially as we've already finished part one. Six parts to this book, part one being the call of wisdom. The call of wisdom. Solomon takes nine chapters of calling his sons, as he writes to his sons, calling them to wisdom. In various ways and in various means, he continues to come back and to say wisdom is calling out in the streets. Listen to the voice of wisdom. So nine chapters of calling The second part, which we begin tonight, starting in chapter 10, I would call the chief proverbs of Solomon. So the call of wisdom is part one. The chief proverbs, part two. The chief proverbs of Solomon. Now these are the ones that Solomon wrote down and put in the original Mishle, or the original book of Proverbs. And it runs from chapter 10 through chapter 22, verse 16. Why did Solomon stop at the end of verse 16? Because when Solomon wrote it, there were no verses and chapters. Okay, we did that so we could follow through a little more easily. But chapter 10 through 22:16 is the chief proverbs of Solomon, those that he wrote and collected and put together in his book. Part 3, we come to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter 24, and it's the collected sayings of the wise. These are not necessarily things that Solomon himself came up with or wrote, but that he collected wise sayings from other people, other places. All, again, inspired by the Spirit. But these verses, 22, 17 through 24, chapter 24, are the collected sayings of the wise. Part 1, the call of wisdom. Part 2, the chief proverbs of Solomon. Part 3, the collected sayings of the wise. Part 4, chapters 25 through 29, we could call the compilation of more Solomonic proverbs. Solomonic is actually a word. The compilation of more Solomonic proverbs. That's chapters 25 through 29. This wasn't in the original Mishle as put together by Solomon, but about 250 years later, Hezekiah's scribes collected more sayings of wisdom, I believe again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to be added to the book. So chapter 25 through 29 is the compilation of Solomonic Proverbs. Then we come to part 5, which is simply one chapter, and it's the comments of the prophet Agur. The comments of the prophet Agur. One chapter where Agur himself writes the chapter. And then finally it closes out part part 6 with the commendations of King Lemuel. And that's chapter 31. So again, the call of wisdom, part one. Part two, the chief proverbs of Solomon. Part three, the collected sayings of the wise. Part four, the compilation of Solomonic proverbs by Hezekiah's boys. Part five, the comments of the prophet Agur. 
And then part six, the commendations of King Lemuel, and that's chapter 31, closing out the book. But just when you thought it was safe to put down your outline, let me give you a couple more things to add. We are into now part two, the chief Proverbs of Solomon, those written and put together by Solomon himself. And this can divide up into two more sections. Part 2A, the continuing contrast of the upright and the wicked. The next five chapters, Solomon will contrast the upright and the wicked, the righteous way and the wicked way. And he'll use various Proverbs to do that. In fact, in the next five chapters, we'll cover 375 Proverbs. All in contrast of the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. You'll see that even as we go tonight. That's chapter 10 through 15. And then the second part of this second part is what I would call the comparative Proverbs. And that's chapter 16 through 24. There's 191 of those. And those are where Solomon says, as this is, so this is. And uses things to compare, to compare and, and explain uh, more of these sayings of wisdom. So all that outline... And it really has helped me just to look at that and think in terms of the outline and in terms of how this is laid out before us. Because, again, the book of Proverbs, it prevents, or presents a unique challenge for us in Bible study. The thing that's different about this book from all other scripture is it doesn't flow thematically like the rest of the Bible does. You know, we were just in the Psalms, and we found not only did individual Psalms have a theme, but oftentimes there were groupings of Psalms. We could go four or five psalms in a row and find that there was an ark that connected them all together. That David, obviously, while he was writing these psalms or or some of the other writers, had a, a, a spiritually inspired theme that they were working out from one psalm to the next. Not necessarily so in the Proverbs. Very often you're reading along and you have one that's on this topic and the very next one is on this topic and the very next one is on a completely different topic and they're not tied together. And... And it can be frustrating if you just open up Solomon's Proverbs and start reading. You might say, well, man, Solomon, will you stick with one theme for a while? Give me a chance to catch up with you. And I was asking the Lord this week, why did you do this? Why in the book of Proverbs, all of a sudden, are you just shooting individual sayings and axioms at us that may be completely independent from one another? And I think the answer may be, that the Mishle is written to force the reader to face each truth. To force us to, before we can go on to the next verse, we've got to deal with this one. And so it's like God puts on the brakes and slows us up and says, one proverb at a time, son. One saying of wisdom at a time, daughter. Just, whoa. Pay attention to these. Learn each one before you move on. We're going to do that as much as we can in here. But, that being said, I highly encourage you all to be reading Solomon's Proverbs at home, on your own time, in your personal study. Tonight we're going to try to cover chapter 10 and 11. Some of this we're going to move through, and you might have a huh moment, or an aha moment. Make a little mark in your Bible and go back to it and meditate on it. Don't use Wednesday night as the sole time that you spend in Scripture. If you do, you're ripping yourself off. Use Wednesday night as the jumping off point, okay? as the, the stirring up point. This will get you motivated, and then you go home and you start to chew on these and take your time. Two Proverbs tonight, or two, two chapters tonight. 
to do. We could probably just do two Proverbs tonight and be just fine. Wrestle with these things. Take them to heart. Don't rush yourself. Allow yourself time to ponder. Why are we doing this? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, a passage we've read a few times already, and I think is a great passage to connect to Proverbs, but here's why we're studying Proverbs. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. When we came to Jesus, we didn't have a whole lot to offer. Oftentimes we still don't feel like we have a whole lot of wisdom in this world. A whole lot of clues as to how to get through one day and on to the next. Not many of us were wise, not many noble, not many mighty. But, down in verse 30 of the same chapter, Paul says, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's why we're in Proverbs. To glean, to learn, to be sanctified by the wisdom of God that we might boast in the Lord and not in ourselves. Well, verse 1 of chapter 10, the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. (laughs) And Solomon nails it. Right there at the beginning, he starts with father, mother, child, the foundation of a family relationship. And have you ever noticed how a parent's affinity for a son or a daughter changes based on their behavior? What I mean is when they're doing well, my tendency is to say, that's my boy, that's my girl. When they're causing me grief, my tendency is to say, Cheryl, talk to your son. (laughs) Suddenly he's her son or her daughter. And Solomon brings this out to his own kids. And he says, boys, you need to understand something about the way your mother and your father tick. You see, when it comes to dads, choose wisely and you get a proud papa. But where moms are concerned, choose foolishly and you will break your mother's heart. See, when my kids do foolish things, it doesn't break my heart. It just bugs me. You know, I just go, well, that was dumb. (laughs) But when they do foolish things... It breaks Cheryl's heart. There's a different way mom and dad approach the children. The pride of a papa. The passion of a mama. And young and old, young and old among us, remember this, your parents are people too. Your parents are people just like your people. Sometimes we have certain expectations for our mom and our dad that carry all through our lives. Even as grown adults, we look at our parents and go, how can they do that? Forgetting the fact that yes, though they were our parents raising us, they're still human beings capable of the same sin that we are. Cut them some slack. Recognize the pride of a papa, the passion of a mama. And whether they show it or not, understand that your parents at any age are deeply affected by your choices and by your decisions. Verse 2. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. And this is true on so many levels. Righteousness delivers from death. We talked about this Sunday. Went in depth on this one. Righteousness is the key to resurrection. Where there is righteousness, there is resurrection to life. That's why Jesus didn't stay dead. Oh, I understand. The exertion of the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all raised Jesus from the dead. 
But the component involved was Jesus was holy and completely and perfectly righteous. He could not stay dead. When He took our sin on Himself and He died, our sin died with Him, and He was left completely righteous. You cannot keep a righteous man down. And so Jesus resurrected. But without righteousness... There is still resurrection, but not to life. There's resurrection to death. What do you mean? The Bible describes two resurrections and two deaths. And this is important theology. We've talked about it before, but I want to make sure we all have this down. Two resurrections described in Scripture and two deaths. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So here's how it works. The first death is the physical death. The death of the body. All people die because all people have sinned. That's the first death. But the first resurrection broke the power of the first death. And that's Jesus' resurrection. The first resurrection. It began with Jesus. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits. So the first resurrection... It's not a one-time event, but it began with Jesus and has extended now out to all who die in faith in Jesus, who experienced the first death, but now have the guarantee of the first resurrection. That is a resurrection to life eternal. It extends to all who are born again. If you're born again, even though you may die, you will enjoy the first resurrection. And once you've enjoyed the first resurrection, guess what? No more death. Ever. You cannot die a second death. The second resurrection. The second resurrection is for all those who die outside of faith in Jesus Christ. They will be resurrected too. These are those who die, who are are born of the flesh, but never born again, never born of the Spirit. And the only possible outcome, according to Scripture, for the second resurrection is the second death. And that is spiritual death for all eternity. Let me put it to you a little more simply. D.L. Moody once said this, He who is born once will die twice. The physical death and the spiritual death. He who is born twice, that is, born of the flesh and the spirit, will die once. And I personally like to add this caveat, if at all. Because if you happen to be alive at the time of the rapture of the church, you're not going to taste death ever. Praise the Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Before I get hit by a car or something. And so, two resurrections, two deaths. If you're a part of the first resurrection, you may experience the first death, death of the flesh. But no big deal. You will be raised to life eternal. And that's what we're looking for. The righteous are delivered from death. Verse 3. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but He will reject the craving of the wicked. Again, this is both physical and spiritual. Physically speaking, Jesus said, don't worry what we will eat, what we will drink, what will we wear for clothing. Matthew 6.31 He says, the Gentiles eagerly seek for all these things, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Do you ever think God has forgotten that you have to be fed. That he turns the other way and doesn't realize that there's nothing in the cupboard. Or that perhaps, wow, do they need... Oh, we got to feed them, right. We gotta, see, that's what I do with Cheryl's fish. 
If she's gone, she has to leave me notes everywhere, you know, stuck up on the bathroom mirror, anywhere that, I, that I'm walking. That's oh, feed the fish because I'll forget. And she'll come back and they'll be belly up. But God doesn't do that. You think your father doesn't know that you need all these things? Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And he's talking about physical feeding. He will take care of you. He will meet your needs. He wants you to focus on his things, his kingdom, and he'll meet your needs. And that's the physical promise that the Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger. But there's a spiritual one as well. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that's why I believe you all gather here every week. Because you're hungering and you're thirsting for righteousness. Guess what? You're getting fed. And you will be satisfied. Verse 4, Poor is he... See how fast we're moving? It's wonderful. (laughs) Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. There is a cause of poverty that I recognize is politically incorrect to discuss, especially in our society, which is increasingly embracing the attitude of entitlement. But I'm going to throw it out there because Solomon already has. One of the primary causes of poverty in our world is negligence. It's just plain negligence. The Hebrew word for negligence here is remeah, and it means slack, idle, slothful, lazy. You know, I, I can't help but hear the cartoon character Goofy singing, Oh, the world owes me a living. When did that ever become the case? Where did you ever read that the world or the government or somebody else owes you your sustenance? It's not true. I read this week, perhaps you read this as well, by most conservative estimates, America will be surpassed by China in financial superpower strength by the year 2016. We're five years away. From China, skirting right on by us. Now, you might say, ah, no big deal. It's not just, you know, I mean, it's just money, right? It's just economy. So they, you know, they got more people. Of course they're going to have a little bit more money. People might say, well, why is that? Why is China going to surpass the United States? Well, it's just my opinion. I'm going to get it. <laughs> but when people ask what's killing America's economy, I'd have to put the attitude of entitlement right at the very top of the list. Because we think we're entitled to the riches and wealth that we have in this country. We are a spoiled people who have forgotten industry, who have forgotten what it means to roll up our sleeves and get to work and dig in and earn a living and work for what we receive. Now again, some might say big deal, so China's at the top, it's just money. Stop and think about this for a moment. What might it mean in terms of world priorities and values and morals to have a new superpower dictating a godless global system? That's what we're facing in five years. It's not just that China makes more money, it's that now China's going to call the shots. That's a little scary. Maybe it's exactly what God needs to do to shake us up in these last days and get the job done. 
But I'm more concerned even with spiritual things than with physical here. When it comes to the church, we've spent a lot of time in the last century especially talking about grace. And rightly so. We needed to. You know, Christians needed to get back to the concept of grace and understand God's grace is all that saves us. And the depth and the meaning and the richness of God's grace. But in all the discussion of grace, I fear perhaps we've lost our work ethic. That in all the discussion of rest, which is good, and Sabbath, which is important, we've forgotten that the other six days, God said, I want you to work. You need to roll up your sleeves. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. That was prescribed for the Thessalonian church. If they're not going to work, you don't feed them. They don't get to dip their hands in the bowl. He says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And see, that's what we do. I need something to do every day, or I start to wonder what everyone else is doing. And I start to stick my nose in other people's business, instead of keeping my nose where it belongs. But will we, are we becoming entitlement Christians? Do we feel entitled to and concerned with only our salvation? Or will we become diligent with the souls of others? Look down at verse 26. Let's skip ahead. Stay with this theme for just a moment. Solomon says in 10.26, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. You know, I don't want to be vinegar to the teeth or smoke to the eyes of God. Vinegar to the teeth, it just burns, you know, and smoke in the eyes, you just, you just, you want to blow it away. I don't want to be that. I want to be sweet in the nostrils of God. I want an odor about me that is sweet. The odor, literally, of work. The sweat for the gospel. Getting out there, making a difference, telling people about Jesus. This is our calling. We are not just entitled to our salvation. We have been given a great grace by God, and we are called to offer that same grace to every person we meet. Everyone we come in contact to has needs to hear the gospel. Are we going to do it? Back down in verse 6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Now that doesn't mean that those who are righteous have a good memory. I've got to share this with you. Cheryl was picking up Naomi at uh, Fidalgo School. You ever have those moments where you literally just, your brain just gets blocked and you cannot remember something? Something simple, you know, your wife's name. She's talking to this lady and, and the lady said, so, so where do you go to church? And Cheryl went, my husband's the pastor. She could not, for the life of her, and her sister Deanne was sitting in the car, and she goes, Deanne, where do we go to church? (laughs) The bridge? (laughs) Yeah, the bridge! (laughs) We're taking her to the doctor and getting her checked out. But anyway, the memory of the righteous is blessed. We're talking about our legacy. We're talking about what's left behind. 
that righteous people are remembered well and the wicked are not. Wicked people, boy, you speak the name and typically it's spoken with a sneer and a twist to the lip. Hitler. You know? I don't remember him fondly. So the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. Why? Because the babbling fool won't shut up long enough to hear the commandments. You know the babbling Shut up and listen. Pay attention here. Listen up. And this is great a great word. The wise of heart receives commands. There is wisdom simply in receptivity to the Word of God. To when the, the Lord is speaking directly to us. Verse 9, He who walks... In integrity, walks securely or confidently. But he who perverts his ways will be found out. Solomon is now back in compare and contrast mode between the wise and the foolish, the righteous and the wicked. And the first part of verse 9, he says, a person of integrity walks confidently and securely. Why? Because he knows where he's going. You know, if you know you're saved... Walk with integrity. Walk with confidence in that salvation. You know that's taken care of. Walk that way. Because you know where you're headed. But the person who perverts their way will be found out. And up comes an old spiritual law that you cannot subvert, you cannot bypass. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32.23 Paul puts it this way, Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So how does a person go about perverting their way? Look at verse 10. He who winks the eye causes trouble. And again, the idea of winking the eye, Solomon uses this phrase. It means if you're devious, sneaky. That's that's the idea there. The sneaky person causes trouble. And a babbling fool will be ruined. This is how you pervert the way. Verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Why? Because the righteous speak righteous things. And remember, righteousness delivers from death. So the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. I encourage you to think about verse 12. We're going to talk about it on Sunday. Think about verse 12. Just that verse is the only one we're going to take Sunday. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, when I was a kid, I used to think that that meant if I love people, I get my sins covered. And the more I love, the more my sins get covered up. And that is not what it's talking about. When Solomon says love covers all transgressions, what he's saying, what Peter's saying, he's saying a loving person covers the sins of others. Someone who is loving is more interested in covering sin than they are in exposing it. And we've gotten this a little twisted up, I think, in our thinking in the church. Love covers Love does not expose, it doesn't shame, it doesn't parade other people's sins all around for everybody else to see. That's not what love does. Love covers. What did Jesus do? 
He covered our sin. What were all the sacrifices for Israel about throughout the Hebrew Scriptures? It was about atonement, covering. Come and bring this sacrifice, the Lord would say, and I will atone for your sins. I'll cover over. Oh, so God's into cover-up? It's not that kind of thing. It's not that love seeks to cover up or hide. It's that love says, I love you so much, I'm not going to bandy about your sin for everybody to know about. I'm going to walk with you, brother to brother, sister to sister. We're going to walk together, and I'm going to help you walk out of the sin, but I'm not going to tell everybody what's going on in your life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his seminary, had a single rule that was held above all other rules. You were not allowed to talk about another person if they weren't present. Period. Good or bad. You couldn't say anything about someone who wasn't standing right there. I think that's a great rule. I think maybe we'll employ that here. That would be real tough for a lot of people. It would be tough for a lot of people. And all the good things you say about me all the time, you'd have to wait till I was there. <laughs> Love covers. More about that on Sunday. Verse 13. On the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Uh-oh, a rod. Corporal punishment. There it is, baby. Verse 14. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish ruin is at hand. The rich man's wealth is his fortress. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. The wages of the righteous is life. The income of the wicked, punishment. Again, back in verse 13. The rod. The rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. And yes, he's talking about someone getting a beating. And I love this. The Talmud puts it this way. In its commentary of this verse, the Jewish Talmud says, That which a wise man gains by a hint, a fool only obtains by a club. <laughs> Some people just take, need to take a beating to figure things out. <laughs> now, Rick, are you all into beatings all of a sudden here? Is that the, no, I, I'm just saying the Bible does teach corporal punishment. The Bible teaches, spare the rod, spoil the child. We'll talk more about this when we get to that particular proverb. But let me just ask you this question. If the whole idea of a rod to the back of corporal punishment, if that bothers you, let me ask you, which is worse? A rod to the back or the ruin of life? And see, we've missed that. We think, oh, no, 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 you can't spank. And then kids are just going off the cliff. And verse 16 says, the wages of the righteous is life, but the income of the wicked is punishment. Isn't it better to have a rod than to have ruin? Especially when we're talking about life everlasting? Verse 17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. And it's not just going astray from some vague idea of a happy life. It's going astray from life itself. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sunday morning I asked the question, and I expected the answer I got, show of hands, how many people here are sinless? And nobody raised their hand. Well, Steve's raising his hand now. We'll get to pride in a few minutes here, Steve. But I ask, how many people...
people are sinless and nobody raised their hand. But you know what the truth is? Every person in Christ, in the barn, on Sunday morning could have honestly and humbly raised their hand. Because the truth is we are sinless in Jesus. The Father has made us, declared us righteous. But this is how it works. He declared us righteous when we declared Jesus as our Lord and Savior. In that moment, you're righteous. God never looks at you the same way again. He only now looks at you through the blood of Jesus, which cleanses and causes us to be sinless. So even as God looks at you and me tonight, while we're worshiping, while we're praying, He sees righteous people. However, He doesn't just stop there. We were declared righteous... But now we are being made righteous. Declared righteous, that's the deal. You're saved. But now we are being sanctified. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we are being made into righteous people. So, we need instruction. And we need training. And we need course correction. And we need reproofs. And even rebuke from time to time. Because God is making us what He's already declared us to be. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I'm already there, but He's getting me there. I'm already pure, but He's purifying me. And that's how it works with the Father. He says, look, I don't want you to worry about whether or not you're going to be good enough for me. I've made you good enough. Now let's walk this out together. That's why we're studying Proverbs. That's why we need this Word. Because He trains us and instructs us in these things. Verse 18. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. Well, he doesn't mince words, does he? When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Verse 20. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. Skip down to verse 31. Let's stay with the theme. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable. Literally bring forth there is bears fruit. So the lips of the righteous bear fruit that is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. All these proverbs seem to have to do with the mouth, but the source is far deeper than that. And you Bible students, you know where we're going with this, that righteousness and wickedness are not just something that come out of the mouth, they're something that issue from the heart. And this is even pointed out in the passage here in an interesting way. And Jesus says the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. But Solomon points this out. Verse 18 begins Verse 18 begins with concealed hatred. He who conceals hatred has lying lips. And it ends in verse 21 with a dead heart. We see words spewing out, but we get down to verse 21 and there's a dead heart. Now you might read verse 21 and say, Where? The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. The word understanding in the Hebrew, leb, is where we get our word lobe, is literally heart. And the Hebrew word leb is used exactly the way we use heart. If you go see a heart specialist, if you've got heart problems, we're talking about that muscle, the blood pump in our body, leb, the heart. 
But the Hebrews, just like we do in English, they use that word heart not just physically, but spiritually. They talk about it as, as an idiom for much more than just a muscle. The theological workbook of the Old Testament tells us in its abstract meanings, heart, leb, became the richest biblical term for the totality of a man's inner or immaterial nature. And so fools die for lack of heart. Understanding, sense, yeah, but it's, it's heart. And what Solomon seems to be pointing out here is that these things that come out of our mouth, especially when it's strife or anger or bitterness or these ugly things, eventually they harden the heart to death. And it's a foolish thing. Verse 22. Oh, I love this verse. This is one of Les's favorites as well. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And He adds no sorrow to it. And that's the difference between blessing and sin. Now listen. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. He adds no sorrow to it. It's like hot fudge cake. You ever had hot fudge cake? You used to have Bob's Big Boy down in California. I don't know if they ever had it up here, but they had hot fudge cake. And it was a, it was a slab of chocolate cake and then a slab of vanilla ice cream and then another slab of chocolate cake pressed down, overflowing. And hot fudge poured over the top with whipped cream and a cherry. Oh, baby! So good. The blessing of the Lord that makes rich, he adds no sorrow to it, is like hot fudge cake with no calories, but all the taste. I mean, when that, if someone could invent that, that would be awesome. On the other hand, listen, sin, sin is a lot like blessing. Did you know that? Blessing makes you feel good. Blessing is enjoyable. Blessing is joyful. Blessing is fun. We all want to be blessed. Sin is just like that. Sin is enjoyable. Sin is fun. A lot of people want to sin. We wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun. We wouldn't sin if there wasn't something that we got out of it. Chocolate cake. But sin is fun until the sorrow comes. And that's where it's different. The world's idea of a blessed life. Think about it. Corona's on the beach. You know, that's it. You've arrived if you're on the beach in your little chair with your Corona and the little umbrella sticking out of the top of the bottle. That is the world's idea of blessing. Or one night stands. Hey, there's freedom in that, right? Wrong. Or bar hopping. Oh, let's go out tonight and do that. Or fame or a fortune. Fast living. And all of that, in the moment, feels like blessing. But sin only simulates blessing because sorrow always comes. And that's the difference. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, yes, but He adds no sorrow to it. In other words, what was a blessing for me from God ten years ago, you know what? It still blesses me. Something that happened yesterday that God did that was a wonderful blessing in my life, I look back and I think about it and I am blessed. The sin I committed last week, when I think about it, it's regretful, it's ugly, I wish it had never happened. Sin and blessing in the moment are very similar, but the next morning are very different. Because the blessing of the Lord adds no sorrow to it. 
joyful in the moment, joyful in the morning. It's always good. Which is why Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. You want to pursue joyful living, pursue the blessing of the Lord. Because sin, sin always brings sorrow. Verse 23, Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool, and so is wisdom to a man of understanding. That's interesting. They're both like sports. The wise man and the fool both practice their endeavor. They both will exercise it. They'll both engage in it. They'll both compete with it. They'll both be trained by it. John says in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. 1 John 3, 7, the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So Solomon's right on. They're both kind of like sports. You've got to work out in them. The sinner as well as the righteous. Verse 25. Oh, I'm sorry, where are we? No, verse 24. We're on 24. Yeah. Verse 24. What the wicked fears will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. In the back, we're, we're back to sin and blessing. Yeah. What the wicked fears will come upon him. Well, I have to live with him, she says, because he might leave me. I fear he might leave me. Guess what? He's going to. Uh-huh. Well, but I, I, I have to keep doing this because I, I fear the consequence. You know, I, I fear the withdrawals afterwards. Guess what? The withdrawals are going to come. And so, it's amazing to me. The wicked fears what will come upon him. The wicked know what's going to happen. We all do. What a way to live. I mean, think about this. We even have a, a phrase for this, life in the fast lane. <laughs> always looking over the shoulder. Always waiting for the next shoe to drop. Fear of the consequences of our behavior. That's the wicked. That's the lifestyle chosen. The lifestyle of the righteous, however, the desire of the righteous, he says, will be granted. I love that. What is the desire of the righteous? To be right with God. The desire of the righteous is simply to be right with God. And God says, if that's your desire, granted. You got it. Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart, which will be the Lord Himself. He is my desire. Now verse 25. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. We talked about on Sunday. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more. The righteous has an everlasting foundation. Verse 27. We already looked at 26. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. That is literally days. Long, full days. Remember that? The full day. God provides, offers a full day for you. doesn't necessarily mean many, many years. It just means the years that you have, the days that you have, will be full. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous is gladness, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. What does that mean? It just means that when you're living a life that's wicked, everything you hope for ends up burning out and is no more. It never lasts. It's never what you hoped it would be. Only in Jesus is there gladness. Verse 29, The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but ruin to the workers of iniquity. Verse 30, The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. 
The wicked live like they're in a whirlwind. Loud, fast, erratic behavior, life in the fast lane, until suddenly they're blown away. The righteous have an eternal foundation, a lasting foundation. You know, it's only as I've gotten a little bit older in my life where I realize long-term faithfulness is better than short-term experience. You know, the fun of my earlier years, I much prefer now the faithfulness of my later years. It's good. There is gladness and there is a long-term joy. Oh, I don't have the, the moments of hyperactivity. You know, I remember when I was younger and wanting to go out with my friends and how excited I was through the day that it's Friday night, we're going out tonight, we're going to have some fun, we're going to mix it up, you know, and how excited, and then it was over. Whereas now, it's just this long-term gladness. You know, if you say, hey, you want to go out Friday night, I'll go like, yeah, okay, sounds good. You cooking? <laughs> no, I'll be there. It's not the same. It's better now. An eternal foundation. Jesus puts it this way, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Matthew 7, 24 and 25. That famous old parable. Found yourself on the long-term, eternal, everlasting foundation of the rock. You know what's interesting about that parallel? Or the parable, the wise man is pounded by the storm. The wise man is in the midst of the whirlwind, just like the wicked man is, but the whirlwind has no effect on the righteous man. The whirlwind doesn't knock him down. He still has full days. He still has glad expectations, a stronghold of security, and unshakable future. I love that. The righteous will never be shaken, verse 30. Hebrews 10.28 tells us we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. An absolute guaranteed future before us that we have nothing to fear. The wicked, on the other hand, in these verses we're told, have shortened years, unsatisfied expectations, ruin, and ultimately, verse 30, the wicked will not dwell in the land. Solomon's talking about Israel. Whenever they say the land in Scripture, they're talking about Israel. And the wicked will have no place there. Thing is, in Solomon's day, there were a lot of wicked people living in the land. Ultimately, they would all go to captivity. But he's talking there, there's something future to this. The wicked will not live in the land. We're talking future Israel. Millennial kingdom, new Jerusalem out beyond that, an eternal and secure home, a solid foundation, an unshakable kingdom. Now, chapter 11 we have certain themes that will emerge. Certain things that do come out, societal themes and personal themes and nautical themes, that's an interesting one, and even agricultural themes. So I'm going to throw those out to you just to follow through. There's a little bit of jumping back and forth, especially between personal and societal, but they force us to consider each individual proverb. Verse 1, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but... A just weight is his delight. That's the first societal proverb. Proverbs, that is, that have to do with your neighbors, that have to do with community, that have to do with society, people living together. And what's interesting is out of this verse, we recognize that God does not separate the secular from the spiritual like we do. 
He doesn't separate the two. This is a business situation. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Jesus, what are you doing in my business? <laughs> you know, what I do Monday through Friday has nothing to do with what I do on Sunday. Oh, yes, it does, the Lord would say. We have successfully in our own sinful minds compartmentalized our secular lives and our spiritual lives. And our spiritual lives are what we share when we're together with other believers and other Christians. But our secular business lives, well, that's just business. God is all over your business. He wants to be a part of your business. He sticks His nose in your business. Even to say a false balance is an abomination. That's a big word. God's saying, if you're ripping someone off in your business during the week, I have an issue with that. I am not pleased with that. It makes me sick. It's an abomination. God simply hates cheating. Why does God hate cheating so much? Why does God care what we're doing in our personal business? Because God cares about society. God cares about community and unity. And when we cheat other people, we destroy community. We destroy society. And furthermore, when someone cheats in their business, you know what else they're doing? They're they're denying faith in Jesus. They're saying, I have to cheat to make an extra buck because I don't trust that God's going to take care of my business and my personal finances. So I'm going to do whatever I can to make my money and tuck it away just in case God isn't true to His Word. Wow. That's just denying faith in God. So he has issues with that. Verse 2, when pride comes, Steve, then comes dishonor. (laughs) When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Quickly, I'm not going to read the story right now, but that is so beautifully portrayed in Daniel chapter 4. An entire chapter of Scripture written by King Nebuchadnezzar. And in that chapter, he tells the story of how I was out of my... Palace. First he had a weird dream about a tree and, and the tree withering and, and getting eaten up and all messed up. And, and then he's out on his palace. He says, I'm looking around at Babylon and saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I've created. Look at my accomplishment. And in that moment, a voice comes from heaven and says, dude, you're done. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. <laughs> and for the next seven years, King Nebuchadnezzar would go insane. And would live like an animal, eating grass. His nails would get long. His hair would be all long and drizzly. and He was messed up for seven years until at the end of it, his right mind returns to him and he stands up and says, there is nobody to glorify other than God. There's nobody that I can praise. God alone deserves all glory. Truly, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. It's a great story to read. Now, this again, we're into some personal Proverbs. This is not necessarily societal, although there is an impact there. But the reality is that pride will always reduce a man or a woman to humility. Because pride denies the truth of our place before God. When I'm prideful, I start to put myself ahead of or before the Lord. James 1.17 James says, every, listen, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Pride makes the wrong assumption that I have done it, that I can gift myself or that I can gift others because of what I do. 
James says, no, every good and perfect gift comes from God. There's nothing good on this planet that comes from us. It's only from Him. Pride denies that. Pride puts the emphasis on ourselves rather than on the Lord Himself. Verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Riches, verse 4, do not profit in the day of wrath. You can't buy your way out of judgment. But righteousness delivers from death. There it is again. Verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. Verse 7, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of strong men perishes. The righteous, verse 8, is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. Interesting. Outside of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, all we have to live for in this life is this life, and when it's over, it's over. And I, for one, don't want to live that way. Why would you? Why would you when you know there's more? Interesting, it tells us the punishment of the wicked was also the place of the righteous. Did you catch that? Verse 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. The wicked takes whose place? The righteous. I had a place in hell. I had an appointment for hell. Jesus saved me. Someone's going to take that place. Jesus took my place. But now there's an open spot. And Solomon's saying the wicked are just going to slide into those openings. The wicked will take those places. Now back to some societal proverbs. That is, proverbs that affect community and and our neighbors. Verse 9. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. So either way, the city's happy. (laughs) I love that. Have you ever seen the musical Scrooge? One of my favorite Christmas specials. You can get it on DVD. I encourage you to watch that. It's just a great musical. And there's an ironic song toward the end of it, sung by this guy, and the song is called Thank You Very Much. And he's singing, thank you very much. It's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. And Scrooge is with the ghost of Christmas past, or no, Christmas future. And what he's witnessing is his own funeral. But he doesn't know it. And everybody's singing, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing, you know. Because he's dead. And Scrooge, it's hilarious, is dancing with them. Hey, I don't know what I did, but I'm glad I did it for all of you. Yeah, right. Not realizing they're, they're rejoicing because he's dead. And the movie ends after Scrooge figures the whole thing out. And after he turns his life around, the movie ends with him ripping up debts and setting people free who owed him money and they start singing, thank you very much, thank you very much. And so it works both ways. It works both ways. The city rejoices when it goes well with those who are righteous. And the city shouts joyfully when the wicked perish. Verse 11. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, 
it is torn down. Hmm. He who despises his neighbor lacks sense. Sense there is lev, heart. You despise your neighbor, you lack heart. But a man of understanding keeps silent. In other words, and this is sound biblical advice, if you have a problem with your neighbor, or if you are aware of a problem or an issue in their life, keep your mouth shut. Unless it's to pray for them. That's the only reason we should be opening our mouth about our neighbor behind their back is in prayer for them. Another way to put this is don't kick up the dust where you live. It's just going to get in your own eyes. Verse 13, He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. As we said before, this is not about cover-ups and deception. The trustworthy person concealing, not in a negative sense, the trustworthy person is the one who can hold the confidence of another person. Now that's obvious, we know that. But he who goes about as a talebearer, I love that word, it's literally a gossip. A talebearer is just a gossip. You know, I was thinking about this verse, and, and I think there's something we have far too much of in Christianity, and I am guilty of this. And that's self righteousness. And what I mean by that is self-righteousness is always looking for ways to prop itself up. To make itself feel better about itself. And we do this, we function in self-righteous behavior, first and foremost, when we are tail-bearers. When we're gossips. When we're tearing on someone else. It is probably the most common and yet destructive issue among people, churched or not. Christians or not. But in the church community, the reason why it's even more vile is because we are called to an intimacy that is different than the world. We're called to confess one to another. You know, we're called to share our lives with each other. And as we share our lives, when the gossip starts to go from there, man, that's an ugly thing. It's a terrifying thing. All in one accord. That's right. But in the church community, here we are. And this issue of gossip is talked about over and over in Scripture, and yet we still deal with it. We still talk. You know, it's the Bonhoeffer thing, like I said. How would it really be if we said, I will not talk about anyone outside of their presence? I won't say a single thing. I would even be okay with us talking about each other behind each other's backs if it's all positive. But I will not say a single negative thing about anybody unless they are right there to hear it for themselves. That would revolutionize church right there. It would change everything. Proverbs 20, verse 19 says, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. And Paul takes it a step further and warns Timothy that gossip will be rampant in the last days. Let's not do it. Let's be a fellowship who refuses it. We we will not tolerate this. Isaiah chapter 35 gives a different approach. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Be encouragers and and lifters up. Builders. And sum it all up with the words of Jesus who said in Matthew 22, 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
When we come to verse 14, and this is the one nautical proverb, okay? Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Why is this nautical? The Hebrew word for guidance there. Interesting word, it's tabulot. Tabulot in the Hebrew is a specifically, it's a nautical term. It's used for steering a ship. The idea of guidance there is steering or or guiding a large ship. In Solomon's day, and they had large ships back then. How do you think they got the cedars of Lebanon down the coast and, and to Jerusalem where they were used for the building of the temple in Solomon's palace? The nautical word here, tabulot, in his day, the ships were steered, were guided by the pulling of ropes by a number of people. You had to have a bunch of men on the ropes pulling it, both for the sails and the rudders. Multiple sailors were required to effectively steer a ship. And it's a great picture here of wise counselors steering a community of people. And that's what he means in verse 14. We need a multiplicity, an abundance of counselors that we might have victory. That we might land where we're supposed to land. That we might navigate this life the way we're supposed to navigate. It takes a number of counselors. Well, where can I go to get this kind of counseling? And does it cost money? (laughs) No. Isn't that funny? We pay money to go to counselors, and, and if you're seeing a counselor and need to, I, you know, I'm not going to make take issue with that, but I, I will say this, after a 40-year longitudinal study to detect the effectiveness of counseling, you know what they came up with? 40 years, and what they realized at the end of it was the efficiency and the helpfulness of a counselor was no different than talking to a friend. No difference. Someone who had friends, counselors, around them versus someone who was paying money to see a counselor. No different. Where do I get multiple counselors? Let me give you a start. There are 66 of them right here. 66 counselors. Men who wrote down the Word of God by the counselor, the Holy Spirit. You start right there. I can point you to a plurality of shepherds here at the bridge. Wise counselors. Men with understanding. And it's not limited there. In fact, I could say tonight, look around. We are, you're surrounded by wise counselors. Well, how do you know, Rick? Well, you're here. <laughs> One of the greatest signs of your wisdom is that you're in the Word. And that kind of counsel we need in the church. We need close counsel with fellow believers guiding us through, helping us to navigate the waters of this life. Simply put, no Christian is an island. We all need help steering. So that's the nautical proverb. Now there are three more societal proverbs. Verse 15. He who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. We talked about this back in Proverbs chapter 6, the first five verses. It's a matter of good community. Don't get into lending money one to another and then expecting payment. It's going to cause you relational problems. Jesus says, lend expecting nothing in return. Oh, go ahead and and give someone a personal loan. Just don't uh, tie any strings to it. Well, I'll loan you some money, but it's going to be a 5.5% interest. And of course, I'm going to need you to make quarterly payments on that if we're going to maintain this relationship. No. Jesus says if someone needs a helping hand, give it. But don't ask him to give it back. Just give it. Well, then I'll be out that money. Yeah, God knows. And He's on it. Verse 16, A gracious woman attains honor, 
and ruthless men attain riches. There's a contrast here, and it's kind of hard to see in, in our language. But the implication is that while the gracious woman attains honor, the best a ruthless man can do is attain riches. Okay. In other words, honor is far better than wealth. So graciousness brings about honor, whereas ruthlessness, the best you can do is maybe make a buck here or there. Verse 17, the merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. Literally, the merciful man does good to his own soul, while a cruel man troubles his own flesh. Remember we talked about that we are a, a triune being, each of us, our nature, spirit, soul, and body. And so the one who is merciful, your soul is blessed. The seed of your wisdom and intelligence. But if you are cruel, your physical body gets troubled. Noah Webster, in his 1828 dictionary, defined mercy as, quote, that benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. And so when we talk about something like mercy, the merciful man does himself good. To extend mercy is to give forgiveness or benevolence or good to someone who does not deserve it because they have been injurious to you. Someone who has hurt you. Well, why should I do that? Two reasons. Because that's how God treats you. Number one. And number two, because eventually you're going to need mercy yourself. And if you're merciful, you will receive mercy. Psalm 103 verse 10 tells us God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. He is merciful. And Jesus says, be merciful, Luke 6.36, just as your Father is merciful. And in Matthew 5.7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that's both in the future, but it's also right now. Someone who goes about in life being merciful to other people is going to receive mercy in return. It's, it's a spiritual truth. Societal Proverbs. Boy, if our society just followed just those in chapters 10 and 11 tonight, it would be a radically different America. Finally, some agricultural proverbs for you. Verse 18. Agricultural. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. Assuredly, verse 21 The evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. The seed of the righteous, literally. Remember Sunday we talked about this. Jesus is the righteous one, and in his death he sowed the seeds of righteousness, and now we are his descendants for it. In John 12.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. And look around, fruit. We are that fruit. We are the fruit of Jesus' righteousness. We are the seed. Man, amazing. If you had to miss this discussion on Sunday, I encourage you to pick up the teaching online. 
Because it's stunning. Not my teaching, but the Word is stunning of the truth of righteousness. And we are that righteous seed of the righteous One, Jesus Christ. Romans 8.10 If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 22. Oh, I love this one. This is a good one. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. I don't know how he got away with it. That's just a great, great proverb. Now, I know Solomon just stuck this one in here to force some consideration. And the historical background, very simply, Israelite women wore gold nose rings for beauty. In the same way that, that women today will wear earrings, actually, I mean, there's a lot of nose ring going on too, but, but it was a, an Israelite thing. It was a sign of beauty to have that little ring hanging out of your nose. I don't know what they did when they had a cold. We won't think about that right now. But imagine. And what Solomon's saying, he's drawing this just brutal picture. Imagine that beautiful woman. Oh, she's just, she's a delight for the eyes and she's got that gorgeous gold nose ring and so she's obviously well adorned in in Israelite society take that ring out and stick it in a pig's nose (laughs) and take a close look that that drippy slimy greasy soily snout with that gold ring hanging there and whatever hanging off of the gold ring it's just disgusting and Solomon said that my friends is the picture of a beautiful woman with no taste the word taste there, discretion, in the Hebrew, ta'am, is literally taste. A beautiful woman with no taste. Boy, I, you know, I could name names. I shouldn't. It would be gossip. Let me just say, all you have to do is go to VH1. If you want to see some beautiful women with no taste, go to MTV. Look at the news. Who's selling the records? Lady Gaga. I said a name. It's not gossip. She's put herself out there. There's a beautiful woman with no taste. Exactly. And it's amazing, isn't it? Especially when it comes to celebrity. How women will rise to fame. And, and some beautiful women out there, but they'll do things and you just go, Why? You're a pig snout with a ring in it. And that's what Solomon is describing here, and it's the same today as then. It's just ugly. Ladies, you might ask, okay, well, what does good taste look like then? Peter put it this way. At the risk of sounding chauvinistic, I'm just going to read Peter's words. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. And I can almost hear today's woman, no offense ladies, but I almost hear today's woman going, well that just offends me. Why? Why should that be a bad thing? How, how far has our society gotten from biblical truth that we read something like the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, something that God says, oh, I love that, and the world goes, ooh. In this way, in former times, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves <laughs> being submissive to their own husbands. Ooh. 
<laughs> Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I've told Cheryl, she called him Lord. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> And you, ladies, have become her, Sarah's children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, some ladies might say, call him Lord, my husband is a dork. (laughs) Have you read what Sarah had to put up with with Abraham? Have you read that story? Where twice he lied and said she's my sister, and so she ended up in a king's harem? Talk about a dork! (laughs) But what did Sarah do? She kept quiet. She entrusted herself to the Lord to protect her, and every time God did. Every time He kept her pure for her husband. Idiot. (laughs) Just call Abraham an idiot. Hey, you know what? Abraham's no more superhuman than any of us. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's beautiful. That gets the ring out of the snout and back where it belongs. Verse 23. What a great proverb. Verse 23. I should have done a whole Sunday morning less just on that one, don't you think? Okay. Verse 23. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Amazing. They know what's coming. They know that wrath is the ultimate end of their decisions. And Paul says they're without excuse. There is not going to be a single excuse that stands up when we stand before God. No excuse. We know. We know where we're headed. Either on the path of righteousness or toward the wrath of wickedness. We know. Verse 24, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in one. We're talking about the contrast between generosity and being a miser. Verse 25, the generous man will be prosperous. And he who waters will himself be watered. And he who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Verse 26 is interesting because it's all about manipulating the market to control the prices. (coughs) Is that what our government's doing right now? Market manipulation to either control or to drive up prices. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. Blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Did you know that capitalism is not a fundamentally Christian system? Really? Rick, are you a lib? No. Listen, saints, any political system or ideology without the Lord is bogus. And it doesn't matter if it's Marxism or communism or capitalism or any other ism. If the Lord is not in it, it's bogus. Because capitalism, without Jesus involved in it, is pure greed. That's all it is. That is the most ungodly thing we can think of. With Jesus in it, the free market and, and, and people involved in, in developing products and selling and sharing, and, and that's not a bad thing with Jesus in it. But our country's been removing Jesus right and left. It's no wonder things are not pretty economically in our country right now. The way of the Lord, gang, is generosity. 
The way of the Lord is to give and give and keep giving and give some more because the generous man will be prosperous. The farmer is a great picture of this because the farmer scatters seed. He buys the seed and then he just scatters it. He throws it. And what happens? It grows. And then he's got more that he can sow the next year. And that's the concept of of generosity. And it's the way of the Lord. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.18, Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And we're down to the end of it here, but listen, Solomon is describing the generosity of scattering and sharing and even selling seed to benefit others. There's a spiritual truth here. I think about Boaz and that wonderful little story of Ruth. Four chapter story. Read it when you get home tonight. Great story. Boaz is a generous guy. Boaz first notices Ruth and says, hey, leave extra for her as she's gleaning in my field. Leave a little extra. And then at lunchtime, he shares roasted grain with her. Here, here, let me... Why don't you have some of my lunch? He shares it with her. And then after lunch, he tells the guys, look, don't even harvest that part of the field that Ruth's in. Just let her have all of it. She goes home with this massive amount. Next thing you know, Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He gets to marry Ruth. And you know what just happened? The generous man has generosity all over him. The blessing is now on Boaz's head. All he sought to do was bless Ruth. And now the blessing was on his head and he ends up fathering a man named Obed who fathered a man named Jesse who fathered a man named David whose son was eventually Jesus Christ. And all because Boaz was generous. And so the proverb is true. The generous man will be prosperous. Blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Verse 27, He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but righteousness will flourish like the green leaf. Verse 29, He who troubles his own house will inherit wind. Sons, daughters, pay attention to that. If you're a problem in your house, guess what your inheritance is going to be? <laughs> Nada. And the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he who is wise wins souls. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. The word rewarded there is recompensed, so it can go either way. If the righteous are recompensed, in other words, given a reward, how much more are the wicked going to be recompensed? In other words, given their just due. Last thought for tonight. Would you like to be counted among the wise? Here's the key. Win souls. If you want to be one of the wise of Jesus, the righteous on the righteous path, man, win souls. The Hebrew word win here is simply to get, to fetch, to lay hold of, to seize. Go get them. Solomon says, here's wisdom. Scatter the word. Sow the seed. Share his righteousness. Win souls. And when it all comes down, Jesus, John 4.35 says this. He says, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? 
Now what do you guys say? Yeah, Jesus. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. He who is wise, Solomon says, wins souls. Where do you go to be a soul winner? And give us some thought. Where, where do you go? Last week we talked about don't cast your pearls before swine. You know, whether they have a nose ring or not. <laughs> don't give dogs what is holy. There are some people who are so rebellious and so anti the message of the gospel of Jesus that when you try to bring it, they're just going to trample it. Don't go there. Fine. So where do I go to win souls? Where can I go to sow where the gospel is well received? Well, let me ask you this. Where was Jesus when He said, look at the fields, they are white for the harvest? Do you remember? It's John chapter 4. He's talking with the woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus is in Samaria where He says, look, the harvest is ready, right here. Not in the Galilee. Not in Jerusalem. Not among the religious of the Jewish people. In Samaria, Jesus says, the harvest is ready. And you remember what happened? The woman he was talking to had already taken off. She went back to town and she said to all the people there, hey, look, I met a guy who's told me everything I ever did. (laughs) So the men in the town are going, really? I'm going to go see what he's saying. I'm going to head out there myself. And suddenly, here's Jesus with the apostles, and the people of the village are all coming up over the road. And Jesus says, harvest time. (laughs) And it's a marvelous story. And here's the truth, gang. The place of the outcast. The place of the overlooked. The place of the undermined. Those who are hurting. Those who are unloved and unappreciated, those who feel like they don't have a place in life, you know what? They are ready to be harvested. If you want to be successful in the taking of the gospel, don't go to those who think they have it all together. You go to those who are broken. And in family and in workplace, when someone's really struggling, when they just if life is not working for them, man, the field is white for the harvest. That's the time to go. The soil is always best for harvesting where people know they can't make it on their own. And so Jesus says in John 4.41, or the, the Word tells us, many more believed because of His Word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Massive harvest in Samaria. Early on in Jesus' ministry. Because that's where the best agriculture takes place. Where people are hurting and they need the Lord. Well, there are so many great Proverbs and we will continue on next week, but let's let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. And Lord, I just pray that some of these axioms, the seeds of these sayings, will take root in our hearts. Father, give us the patience to return to these over the next few days and to pour over the Scriptures and to think about each individual thing that we've read. Give us clarity and understanding. And Father, it is Your wisdom that we seek. Your righteousness, Lord. And ultimately, resurrection. God, may we be sowers of the seed. May we take the Word with us. 
And may we see a harvest in Jesus' name.